Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Uh, click on your apps. Six what? Page 689 if you're using one of our Bibles underneath the chair. If you need that Bible, you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. We'd love for you to have that as our gift to you. So while you're turning there, quick little story, because I wanted to sound tough. And I, man, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope I haven't told this story in here before. I don't think I have, but I always have a desire to sound tough because I'm kind of not that tough. And so I tell these, any, I tell the few of these stories that I have often. But I, I went to see a movie with a buddy at Edwards Marquis a few years ago. And it was a late night movie. It's my favorite time to go see movies, as you've already heard. And I walk out, he, he and I walk out, and to our right, there's three teenagers, about three teenagers about to fight two teenagers. And it's a pretty precarious situation that the two teenagers are trying to hold their own. The three are kind of doing the whole like spread and conquer kind of thing. And, and then one of the three goes and clocks one of the two in the face. And the two in the face, the, the guy that gets hit in the face just bells out and runs and leaves his, do, his friend alone. And my buddy and I, like we were already thinking, do we step in? And then we were like, okay, we have to step in. And so this, and I see this, the, the teenager that was by himself, I just see terror in his eyes, but he's trying to, you know, hold his own. And we step in in between and we're like, hey guys, this is not going to happen. You're going to stop. And immediately the, the little dude behind me gets really tough. And he's like, yeah, come on. And I'll turn around. And I was like, hey bro, you need to stop talking. This is your chance to run. So you go. Like no more talking, Go. So we held the guys off, like, because they kept wanting to go after him, so we were kind of like sheep, like sheep herding them, like, no, no, no. And then once we kind of appeased them, kind of got them calmed down, we went and found the guy, walked him to his car. It was a really sweet moment, and that was the end of it. So that's what our message is about today. Intrigued? All right. So <clears throat> there we go. So let's go ahead and go to our text for the day, Matthew 5. We're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mountain, specifically this, this section is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. If you don't know, this is the first and longest sermon that we have straight from Jesus in all of Scripture. So if we say that Scripture matters because this is the message of God, I'm sure that you would agree that Jesus' longest sermon matters. So that's why we come to this. We're spending the whole year in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's come to the Beatitudes. We have a few more weeks left, maybe two, this week and next week, I guess. So... Let's read. We're going to read all of them because you can't separate them, and then we'll talk through what we're covering today. So we're going to start in verse 2. Here we go. It says, And he opened his mouth, again, that's Jesus, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, com for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we come today to this text to a very current need in our Beatitudes today. And we come to this need in, in thinking about the violent attacks that we've seen this week in Paris. Today we'll spend some time praying for those specific people in Paris and those affected at the end of our, at the end of our message today. 
but for now, we want to focus on this need, and that need is the need for peace. So we come to, we come to our, our beatitude, this verse 9 right there. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So if we say that there's a need for peacemakers, so that's what this is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, so there should be peacemakers. If we're saying there's a need for peacemakers, why is that? And we can simply say because there is conflict in this world. There is turmoil. There is upheaval. There is conflict. So why? Why is that our reality? Conflict comes because the hearts of man have been set on satisfying their own desires through any means possible. And when something gets in the way of that satisfaction, there is conflict. In other words, conflict comes when you don't get your way. From the time that you are born to the time that you die, whether it's individual, whether it's family, whether it's group, whether it's nation. It's when you don't get your way. James 4, 1 and 2 communicates this clearly. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So first, that internal conflict. Secondly, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't get what you want. And why is that self-centered desire there? And there's one word. It is sin. Sin is the cause of all conflict in this world is the fact that we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people surrounded by fallen people and that is why there is conflict that is why we are lacking in peace that is why we need peacemakers so if sin is the cause Jesus is the only remedy but we'll come back to that in a little bit for now let's build the tension a bit more sin is the cause of all conflict sin focuses you on yourself. It focuses me on myself. That's it. So why is it so important? that? It, why am I hitting this so hard? Why is it so important to recognize that sin is the root of all conflict? When you understand that sin in the work of Satan, the enemy, and that they are the enemy, you'll see yourself, you'll see your relationships, and you'll see the world differently. You start to understand who the enemy is. You start to understand who your conflict is against. Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's real. It doesn't feel real because we like the tangible, but it's real. So first, when we talk about sin, understanding that sin is the cause for all conflict and why that matters and how that changes how we relate to self. By the way, I think it's really funny. I was thinking about this during the intro, hearing these kids. We don't need a pager system in our church. It's really funny. Like, it's, I've watched it through the weeks and the months that the parents know. Like, they know, okay, that's my kid's cry, and I'll just watch them get up and go out. Like, no pager. So anyway, little commercial break. I think it's, and there he goes. Get out. <laughs> that's awesome speaking of conflict um, I'm just kidding so, uh, but yeah but why does 
knowing that sin is the cause, for, how, how does knowing that sin is the cause for all conflict change how we view ourselves, relate to ourselves, and deal with the, with the conflict that wars within, as we just saw in James? And I'll, let's go ahead and give it away here, and we'll come back and work through it. Because when you recognize that, you are free from yourself. And again, caveat, in Christ, but we're going to come to that in a little bit. When you recognize that your battle is against sin, all of a sudden you're free from the battle against yourself. You're not consumed with what happens to you or what will happen to you. It's no longer about maintaining your rights and your dignity. It's no longer about what you deserve. So when you're wronged, all of a sudden your posture has changed. We've talked through the progression of the Beatitudes each week, and, and, and that continues here. But today, for this time, I want to look at something that this really, I love this, this, this teacher, this pastor, this really just godly man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. This, this thing that he pointed out that there's parallels with these Beatitudes. And so I want to take a moment to look at the parallels between these Beatitudes. And so when we look at the first one, to be poor in spirit, we see a parallel that that being poor in spirit also relates and leads to being merciful. And they go together. It is only in recognizing, when we talked about poor in spirit, our great need for a redeemer, our great need for a rescuer that we cannot achieve on our own, that you can then be moved to help and, and, and be awakened to the great need of those around you. So poorness of spirit and being merciful is connected. Then we come to the mourning of our sin. Being broken of our sin and being pure in heart are also connected. Being broken over your own sin will give you the distaste for the duplicitous nature of our flesh that comes out and results in the expressing of the pureness of heart. The desire, the, the will to fight for that, the will to shed yourself of the flesh as you surrender your life repeatedly to the will and way of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, instructed and, and, and worked through his truth. And then today's beatitude, being a peacemaker, is connected to meekness. Meekness. We said that meekness was being, was being humbled in how others looked at you, allowing yourself to be looked at. You know, we kind of talked about it. We're okay with saying, I'm a sinner. Hopefully we get there. That's hard. But it's easier to get to that point than to let someone else say you're a sinner. So let someone else speak against you. In meekness, we lay down our current rights for our future promise. In meekness, we defer the strength and authority of those who are in Christ in assurance of our future hope and deliverance. It is only in this meekness that we can live out what it is to be a peacemaker. So if you, if you remember, as we were kind of working through these, if you were here, if you're not here now, meekness, when we came to that third beatitude of meekness, it turned us from our inward experience and work of the Holy Spirit and deliverance of Jesus to the way that we interact with the world. Being poorness of spirit, was, having poorness of spirit was, a, was an internal work, a posture of the heart. Mourning, again, a posture of the heart, an internal work, but meekness turned us to how we relate to the world. All of a sudden, we're seeing the progression now. So how does this understanding of sin being the root of all conflict affect how we relate to people in our relationships? You recognize this. 
When you are hurt by others, there is something more important than how it affects you. All of a sudden, you recognize that they are not the only ones responsible for their actions. Of course, in this world, we hold people responsible for their own actions, personal behavior. But as far as the way forward, we recognize that there is more here than just how it affects you and their actions. Instead of asking, why would they do that to me? You're led to a compassionate and empathetic question of, in what ways are they still captive to self and Satan that has made them act in this, in this way toward me? Do you see the difference? Do you see why that's important? We don't like talking about sin or, or giving Satan any kind of space, but it's real. Again, think back to what we just read in Ephesians. It's real. Like, do you want to walk around equipped in this world or just obliviously, like, just vulnerable to attack? And to not being used in this way. Ignore these things and that's what will happen. So you ask those, these selfless, compassionate, empathetic questions when you recognize the root of conflict and hurt. Does that sound like a shorter route to forgiveness and peace? You start where you should. This, the starting point matters. You have the right target. So what prevents us from reconciling relationships if this is a fact? This is the truth. It's our personal, like what we just talked about, so now connecting. It's our personal fight for dignity, respect, and rights, and the need to exact our wrath when those are compromised. As opposed to entrusting, when we talk about meekness, entrusting, entrusting all those things into the sovereign good care of God expressed in his character. So in this, we realize we have laid down our own rights. Our dignity is grounded in the fact that we belong to God the Father in Christ. And there is no place for our wrath as we have been invited to entrust all things unto God, including any vengeance is due. You ever heard, I think this has been misused many, many times, but you've ever heard, vengeance is mine, says the Lord? That's the call. I mean, first and foremost, that's a call to surrender, to entrust to him as the ultimate judge of what's right and wrong, and the one who will never get that judgment wrong. You and I will get that judgment wrong. He never will, so who better to entrust that to? Our wrath, our wrath satisfies only one thing. It achieves only one thing. It satisfies our own ego, but it does no good for the restoring of the other and does not point to the glory and character of God. So yes, we deal with conflict, but our motivation is totally different. It's for God's glory. It's for the good of others. And it's for the restoration of relationship. So we're moving through this quick. Understanding how sin is the root of all conflict in ourselves and our relationships. It's not that hard now to see how, how this must change how we see the world, Right? So we've looked at the personal, the self, we've looked at the, the, that immediate sphere of relationships, and now we look at the world and the conflict in the world. This is an extension, of course, of relating to others. We can see that the conflict between tribe and tribe and nation and nation is exactly the same. This comes, again, whether it's you or whether it's governments. There's an elevated view of the self-sovereign due to sin and deception that drives the desire to achieve and protect no matter the expense of resources or lives. Let's look at the world today. We've got a map here. 
Dun, dun, dun. There it is. This map you see is the result of generations of human effort toward peace. What you're looking at is a pretty current representation of world conflict. Of course, we're missing some. I mean, Paris isn't on there. This, is, this came out before that. But you see there is conflict over the world. And you think about man's efforts, the, the things that governments and, and organizations and factions have done to achieve peace whether it is on the passive side through treaties and councils just meeting over and over again and or the laying down of nuclear weapons, whether it's voluntary or by force, or war in the name of peace. We have seen this over and over again, generation upon generation, years upon years, decades upon decades, centuries upon centuries, and this is the state of our world. Is the human effort effective to bring peace? I submit that it is not. It's eye-opening, and it's sobering. Why does understanding this matter so much? I think, one, we too often place our hope in the wrong things. I think, again, we should participate to be good citizens, to be good neighbors, to vote our conscience civically in ways that, that promote the very same desires of God, to vote in legislation that, that promotes human flourishing as God's will and his work does. Not, not prosperity, but human flourishing. Okay? I think we should absolutely do that. But we don't place our hope in leaders. We don't place our hope in government. We don't even place our hope in getting all those dots gone. Because, again, we live in a fallen world. There will always be conflict. But yet, what is illuminated here is that what we need is peacemakers. And we're going to talk about how we are to be peacemakers. Because when we understand this, we understand that the root of conflict and our source of peace, we are no longer dependent on the circumstances around us to have peace. We no longer need the perfect mingling of daily events and interactions to ensure peace. This is our understanding of peace. And the promise, the description of this promise of peace, we find it in Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What we just looked at was an effect of pursuing peace that comes from understand, your understanding, your limited sight and understanding. But when you come and submit all things to God saying, I need your way to peace, all of a sudden there's a peace that is beyond our comprehension, beyond our vision, beyond our ability to conceptualize in our, in our wording of treatings, in our aligning of countries, in our, in our allies and foes. We see that. There's a peace promised peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So what the, like I said, what the world's need, what the world's needs is not these treaties, but it needs more and more peacemakers. So what is it to be a peacemaker? I love it that we've got through half of the message and half of the time. That might be a first. It's exciting. So it's great. It's a good day. There will be peace. Um, get it? Okay. So what is it to be a peacemaker? Notice that this text, this verse, doesn't say 
Blessed are the peaceful. It doesn't. Peacemaker is a different word entirely in case you're wondering if it's just up for interpretation. Of course, it has the same root word because they're both from peace. Peaceful is erinikos. Peacemaker is erinopoios. All right, my Greek friend, give me the thumbs up. So, that's good. I always like having you here. Different words is first, so we can know that they are they have different definitions. What would the difference be if this said, blessed are the peaceful? That would result in a life of appeasement. To pacify or placate by the accepting of demands. Now, you play that out in culture. You play that out in the world that you live in every day. You play that out as you live out your convictions given by the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and directed by Him. And as you humbly say, let me go forward in your name, you recognize that that is countercultural. You recognize that there's a different way of seeing, a different way of hearing, a different way, a different language. There's a different paradigm because this world is not all there is. Our authority is first and foremost in heaven. And so all of a sudden to think about it's not just appeasement to pacify or placate by the accepting of demands. We see that it can't be just peaceful. If that was the case, you would end up with something much closer to the cultural expectation and demand on Christianity, which is, hey, hold your beliefs all you want, but don't make waves. Don't rock the boat. Or, hey, your faith is for you. Keep it private. Or, hey, you must acknowledge that all sincere convictions must be validated as true. I was having a conversation with a friend who is, I guess, agnostic and was asking me advice for a student, a 17-year-old student in her class, who is a zealous, passionate Christ follower. In his zealousness and his youthful vigor, he is often abrasive. And he every and they're in this they're in this art it's art history class, and so they're studying the art and like oftentimes he'll give this historic he's really knowledgeable too and he'll give this historic background and how it's rooted in in faith, and he'll 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 evangelize the class and demand a response, and she was like you know how, how do I talk to him I've tried to tell him you know can't you just acknowledge that someone else's sincere belief can be can be real, can be true. And I was like, no, he can't. You're asking him to deny the very thing that he's passionate about. Now, sidebar, what you can say to him is like, hey, I appreciate your conviction. I'm someone who doesn't believe what you believe, and you're very abrasive, and maybe you could speak more invitationally or something, you know, or just, again, speak the love, the truth and the love that's there. But it's interesting, like her perspective was, Hey, you need, to, you need to at least validate that someone else's truth can be truth. But if we believe that God is who he says he is, that he's the creator of the universe, the authority of all things, the sovereign, majestic, preeminent God, and that he is the author of truth, that is saying that he is our definition, definer, giver of truth. We are saying there is an absolute truth. So with great conviction and sincerity, we have to say 
Yes, there is a truth. With great respect and generosity, we can say, let me come alongside you and love you as you are and show you this truth with my life. I mean, let God's truth transform. I just chased a pretty good rabbit. We'll see if we get through the second half in the same amount as the first half. But it's, that, that's a great picture of, of the world's expectation and definition of what it is to live out your faith. And then kind of the last expression I would see is to not ever speak against popular belief or social norms. Not just to disagree, but you can't even express your disagreements. So I said that this, what we just read was the accepted cultural expression of faith. But for many of us, if we're honest, this is our, our preferred expression as well. It's very personal. We take it very seriously personally. But we just try to stay under the radar you know, and, and, and do the right things, make the right choices, but just not make waves, not, rustle feather, not, not ruffle feathers. And sometimes that's what we feel is motivated by, again, wanting to be peaceful. And we call that maybe being loving. But as we continue through this, we will see that that is not being a peacemaker. That's not loving. If you believe that God's truth is the truth and that it is good because it's an expression of his character and the, and the word tells us and hopefully your experience if you do know him in Christ is that he is good and loving, then you would have to believe to be loving in humility, in patience, in respect. You would have to proclaim the truth of God. So this is not simply a charge to live without making waves, but there certainly is a charge to do that. It's to strive to live at peace with your neighbor, as we see in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now that's different. That speaks to what I was just saying to hold your convictions, live out truth boldly, courageously. But yet, the first two commands, love God, love people. You have to do those first, and you follow, and you live out these commands out of those. So you love well. Again, you be generous. You be humble. You be patient. You be respectful. And it's expressed out of that. So you can still have a strong expression of your conviction of God's truth and its goodness for you and for the whole world, and yet still live out this. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You don't want to be the offensive one. You want to let God's truth be the one that confronts. God's truth offends. I don't know if you remember or not, but at one point, if you're not right now, you've been offended by God's truth. Don't forget that and think about the result. If you were brought to your knees in a place of repentance, you've experienced the kindness of that. Again, I'm not making that up. Scripture says God's kindness leads us to repentance. You've experienced that, so don't forget that. Again, poor in spirit leading to mercy. So to be a peacemaker is to try to live at peace with others, but it goes way beyond that. The truest sense of being a peacemaker is that you actively, willfully, and personally work for peace. How? How do we do that? Our map showed us that there are works that don't work. So what works do? I'll tell you. If the fruit of your efforts come out of one motivation, we'll be a lot closer. The one concern for the peacemaker is this. It is for the glory of God. The glory of God expressed through the living out of his commands that carry out his very character and leading to his redemptive work in this world. Excuse me, I'm a, I got a tickle. <laughs> Sorry. 
No, not the right thing to say. Have you, have you guys seen Notting Hill in the scene where he's like climbing the fence? He's like, whoopsie daisy. And then he does it again. He's like, who says that? Like six-year-old girls and me. <coughs> That's what I felt like just then. I have a tickle. Um, I'm going to turn into Bernie Sanders. I don't know. Um, That's how he sounds. Anyway. Okay. Let's get back to it. Sorry. I need commercial breaks every now and then. Um, <coughs> but the one motivation that leads to what it is to be a peacemaker is the glory of God expressed through our lives. And God made this possible in Jesus. We said sin was the problem of all conflict, and Jesus is the only remedy. So God, bringing his glory through us, was made possible in Christ. As we said, that sin was the root of all conflict, and that Jesus is the only remedy. So first and foremost, that warring of soul, that warring of self that comes from your being dead in your sin is first brought to peace in you surrendering your life to Christ. Again, poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, so our first call as peacemakers, peacemakers is to take this very message that if you are in Christ, that you have experienced this message of redemption in Christ alone, through faith alone, in Christ, to all the world. That is our first work of being a peacemaker. We see that Jesus is this, this way to peace, this source of peace. He is the peace. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell we're speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is the conflict we are in before Christ? It is the estrangement of us with our creator God, our loving heavenly father. What is the conflict? Is that again, that we are dead in our sins, rebels outside of the family. And it says there that we were reconciled. What greater peace than to be brought back into the fold? Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 says, For he himself, again, Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So we see that the, 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 peace, the peacemaking work of Jesus is not just something for you personal, but it also brings a people together. It brings a unity because, again, all the differences, all the ways that all of our experiences and just the ways that we see things, those are, are, are shown for what they are. And all of a sudden, we are brought to the bigger truth that we are unified in our common need and our common salvation in Christ. So my question to you is this. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you believe? I mean, do you really believe that Jesus is the only hope for this world. Do you believe that? Just take a second. Like, to conceptually, does, does that sit with you? To think about all the need of this world, to think about Paris and the, the, the violence that just happened in Paris, can you with full conviction say, that, man, the turmoil that is there, the only remedy is Jesus? Do you really believe that? Now, of course, we're talking about that being lived out and expressed in tangible ways through the body of Christ and the work of his spirit and his word. But yet, do you believe that? And humbly, I say, if you don't, I encourage you to prayerfully consider if you understand Jesus to be your only hope. If you understand that Jesus is your only salvation, your only redeemer. His work, not yours. His work, no other organization, no other institution, no other amount of work 
Do you believe that? How do we act as peacemakers in delivering this message of hope in Christ? So look at the last half of this beatitude in Matthew 5, 9. And we see in this last half, we see the identifier, the new identity of those who are in Christ. Again, we say that these are not conditional clauses, but they are characteristics of those who are in Christ, achieved by Christ, imputed, given to us by the work of Christ. It says, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the key. So to act as a peacemaker is to act out your new identity in Christ. In Christ, we are adopted as the children of our Heavenly Father. We are made in His likeness and now free to live out that likeness and made to live out that likeness to a greater extent every day. What is His likeness? God in Scripture is repeatedly referred to as the God of peace. We see that in Romans 15.33, for example. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We see that Jesus, being his son, referred to as the prince of peace. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, to be peacemakers, it is to understand that we are participating and surrendering to the very act and heart and character of God made possible through the work of Christ. So we just read Jesus brought peace as he took on flesh and incarnated into yours and my world. He came into our need. He took on the costly act of bringing peace. He laid down his rights and dignity for the sake of us who were and are in need. He didn't require that we change before he came. He came so that we could be changed. He didn't require that we clean up our act and absolve some conflict. He came because he knew that his, our only hope of being freed from the, the, the conflict of this world, the conflict of self, was Christ alone himself. So for us to be peacemakers, we must step in on behalf of others actively do the hard and dirty work of coming in between in order to bring restoration and redemption. You see what I did there, bringing it back to the story at the movie theater? There, I was in line. We must lay down our dignity and our rights. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but he willfully laid that down and took down, took, he humbled himself and came down and lived amongst us, amongst us, faced every temptation without sin, so that he could be our atoning sacrifice that was not only worthy, but also empathetic. We must lay down our dignity and our rights for the sake of others. Actively step in on behalf, step in in between, by first proclaiming the, 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 the message of Jesus. Beautiful are the feet who deliver the message of good news. And then secondly, by by again, being prayerful about how can we be active in bringing peace among others, again, reflecting the work and heart of God. So again, we don't cast aside human effort. We don't cast aside the, the, the human result of peace. We want people to live at peace with one another. But we must recognize that the only hope of real peace is through a reconciled, unified people that is only achieved in Christ. So our promise is peace regardless of circumstance. Our command is to uphold and step in for peace and proclaim 
to proclaim it, you know, that, that that is only in Christ alone. That's our promise, and that's our command. So now, kind of as part of our application of this, we, we move into a time of prayer each week. And our time to praying today, I want us to pray specifically about areas that we need to step in as peacemakers. Again, whether it's someone in your life that you know is seeking and hurting and needs Jesus, and you may, you may be the one to come alongside, love them well, live out truth, and introduce them to God through that, and Him working through His truth through you. Or whether it's the very tangible things of a, rec- a need of a reconciled relationship that you have, or seeing the, the discord in our city or seeing things like what's happening in Paris or, the, or, or what's happening in Syria or just all over the world, let's pray specifically in this time. Let it be a prayer of confidence. Let it be confessional, whatever it needs to be, as you can participate. For some, they will pray out loud. For others, they will pray silently. If you're not comfortable with either of those, I invite you to listen and hear the heart of God's people expressed in humility and vulnerability to him knowing that our confidence is not in us, but in him. So I'll start us. We'll let you continue. In a little bit, uh, Travis will come up and lead us through a time of response and communion. So God, we are a people that are in need of peace. Because of our sin, because of our flesh, and Lord, we also are a people who have been given promise in Christ. And Lord, I just, I confess, Lord, my own desire for comfort, my own desire to, to not make waves. And I'm a people pleaser, God, and I have such a hard time stepping in sometimes. I have such a hard time, Lord, giving people grace that, that offend me often. I have such a hard time not internalizing the most mundane of things, God, uh, in, these, in, my, in my everyday relationships. And so, Lord, bring me to a place of being humble. Bring me to a place of understanding, Lord, that we do not battle against flesh and blood. And so, Lord, as I, as I look around first, let me see the need for work in me. And then also let me just have that compassionate, empathetic, benevolent heart towards those that are closest to me. I know that I have the hardest time extending them this grace. And Lord, I pray just for a very active, stirring towards how we can participate in being peacemakers on the, the, the community, the city, the nation, and the world stage. That we would be a people who lay our lives out bare before you and say, hey, my life is yours. If you say go, I'll go. Or that we would understand that you have created us. I would understand you've created me to be a sent people, to live as a sent people. And Lord, that the norm is that we go, not that we stay. And again, whether it's to our neighbor or whether it's to somewhere on the other side of the globe. And Lord, I just pray this earnestly. I pray for a breaking. I pray for just, again, a refining. I pray for my heart and my eyes to be open. I pray for me to have thick skin and a thin heart. For your glory. Let's be zealous for your glory. Let me be zealous for your glory, God. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Let us be passionate about your word and desiring to see your right judgment brought because we know that it leads to restoration and redemption. We know that it leads to your glory. We know that that draws people to us, to, to you. So, God, as a people, as a church, as a family, let us first extend this work to one another. Let us hold short accounts. Let us be honest. 
Let us not be quick to cast aside. Let us be quick to listen, slow to anger. So, Lord, I just I submit all this to you. Lord, I know that I don't, even, I don't even have the full understanding of my great need at this time. So just continue to do that work in me. In Jesus' name.